Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to do verses 1 through 8. I'm going to call this section, Preach the Word in Season and Out. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, at the end of the chapter, Paul told Timothy that all Scripture was inspired and good for edification, reproof, and correction, and so forth. And I'm sure he was reacting against the false teachers who, of course, were not preaching the truth of the Scriptures, but were teaching myths, irreverent babblings, and other silly things, mythologies, Gnostic teachings, legalistic teachings, and so forth. And so Paul continues the basic theme of his letters to Timothy, which is to avoid the heresy and overcome it. We start in verse 1. I charge you, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his coming, by and by his appearing and his kingdom, excuse me. Now Paul says, I charge you. Ellison makes the point, this is the last letter Paul wrote before he was martyred and killed. If he had a feeling he wasn't going to be around much longer, and I think he did feel that way, because he said he was poured out as a drink offering a little bit later on. He said he was finished the race. He's fought the good fight. So it sounds like he's ready to go to the Lord, and that would make his charges to the young Timothy to take on a deeper meaning because he's about to leave him for the last time. So he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In the presence of God, the word is epiphany, literally, according to Ellison. Other translations have it in the sight of God, in the presence of God, or before God. I charge you in the sight of God. In other words, God and Jesus are looking down on you, Timothy, as I charge you this. This is serious business I'm about to tell you. Paul says that Jesus Christ is to judge the living and the dead. That means in the future, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead, but it was not the AD 70 future as hyper-preterist heretics would love us to think. Because when did Jesus judge the dead at at the destruction of Jerusalem? This is talking about the end of time when Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. Now, the end of time, of course, is disputed between pre-mill people and non-pre-mill people. The end, the judgment takes place at the beginning of the millennium, according to the Kilius, the pre-mill advocates. I don't believe that. I believe it's talking about the general resurrection and the general judgment of the wicked and the righteous, which happens at the end of time in the beginning of the final state. But that's an argument, of course, for another time, very complicated argument there, theological argument. And Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, not only about in the presence of Jesus, who's the judge of the living and the dead, but also by his appearing in his kingdom. I charge you by his appearing and his kingdom. Well, appearing, of course, could mean his coming or it could mean his presence. His kingdom could be the final kingdom at the end of the world, as I just said, where the judging of the living and the dead is going to be. And I think that is what it is. You could take kingdom uh, as referring to the church, which started at the first advent, but the judging of the living and the dead, the context seems to me to make it appear to the end of the world. Now, one little note before we go from verse 1. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's not a problem if it's translated as is to judge the living and the dead, but the Young's literal translation has about to, who is about to judge the living and the dead. Well, if it's about to judge the living and the dead, then Paul's made a mistake because 2,000 plus years is not about to. Well, I'm sure that's a translation problem. I was going to investigate it, but unfortunately my internet is down this morning, so I'm just going to leave it here 
and say that this is referring to the judgment of the living and the dead at the end of time. We go to 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Paul continues to exhort Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now notice that Paul calls Timothy a teacher here. He says, reprove, rebuke, and so forth with complete patience and teaching. Notice that the teaching is not just academic because it's connected with reproof and rebuke, so it's more of a training type of teaching. We know later on in this verse, in this section of Scripture, Paul is going to tell Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. We've In another part of Scripture, I've established that Timothy was called an apostle. He wrote the the books of, I think it's First and Second Thessalonians, from Paul, Timothy and, Timothy, and Silas, and he mentions, he refers to them as us, the apostles. So Timothy's called an apostle. He's an apostle. He's a teacher. He's an evangelist. And some would say he's a pastor because he's he's dealing with internal problems in the Ephesian churches there. So he was a, he had a lot of ministry. He was he was a jack of all trades, if you will. It just goes to show that people don't have just one gift necessarily. They have a combination of gifts, and their giftings are somewhat unique because everybody's a little bit different. God will take your gifts, whatever they are, and he will fa- fashion the circumstances that you're in to match the gifts that you have. Notice that Paul tells Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. That just means all the time. Another way of saying all, all the time, 24-7. Be ready 24-7 because you never know when you're going to have to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching. Now, rebuke, Adam Clark says, means to reprove cuttingly and severely. Ooh, I don't know. Adam Clark says that, but Paul says reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I'm not sure that cuttingly and severely gives the exact idea of what Paul's talking about here. Now, why do you have to be patient when you're teaching people, when you're trying to train them in godliness is because people don't do what you know they ought to do. I mean, because of your experience, you're exhorting a younger person, and it's just amazing how they will not listen. Even though you know they're hurting themselves. I've got a convert from China who, every time she tells talks to me about her boyfriend, she says, I know you're not going to like this, but because her boyfriend's not a Christian. I said, don't do that. Does she listen to me? Of course not. She's a dedicated Christian, but she's brought a lot of trouble into her life. She says, well, I'll never marry him, huh? Well, okay, I'll tell you not to do that too, but are you going to obey that or not? And it takes a lot of patience to deal with that, I'm telling you. My patience has just about run out. But Paul tells Timothy, complete patience. Put up with people who don't do what they're supposed to do. You have to reprove them now. You can't just let them go off in their sin. You've got to tell them you're not doing right, but you've got to be patient about it. Now, when Paul tells Timothy in verse 2 to preach the word, we often, we at least I do, automatically think of the Word of God, the written scriptures, or in the case here in Timothy's time, the scriptures were not all collected into the canon yet, so it would be the the words of the apostles that were being passed around orally and so forth, the word of the gospel. But another option is Jesus himself. Now, the option that is the gospel, the gospel message, is mentioned by Ellison Gill and Clark, but also the option that it's Jesus, because Jesus is the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Preach the Word, preach Jesus, as Ellison and Gill say. 
or suggest. I don't know. I don't think we need to make a distinction because you preach the word. You are preaching Jesus, aren't you? You're preaching, preaching Jesus. You're preaching the word. Now, Paul tells Timothy the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. When is this in Paul's day? Or is it the time is coming all the time, every day, from now to the end of the world? Or is it talking about the days at the end of the world? Well, I don't think this refers to the days at the end of the world because people who have itching ears and want to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, they show up all the time. And in fact, they showed up in Ephesus during Timothy's time. And in fact, that's what the whole letters of First and Second Timothy were about. Paul is exhorting Timothy to deal with these creepy people who have itching ears. So I don't think it, we need to put this at the end of time. Of course, they'll be here at the end of time. They're here now. John Gill says he's writing in the 19th century, 1800s, he says the characters of it, these people with itching ears who want to collect teachers for themselves according to their own passions, to suit their own passions, the characters of it have appeared more or less in all ages since and in none more than ours. John Gill says see, he's thinking about his century and we're thinking about ours. It's always going to be false teachers. They're everywhere. I just saw the other day that Joyce Meyer believed that Jesus stopped being the Son of God when he went down into hell to preach the gospel. Well, first of all, he didn't go into hell. That's something that's in the Apostles' Creed that was added. There's, there's a lot of people that believe that. They're not heretics. Don't get me wrong. But, but let's just say, assuming for the sake of argument, that he did go down into hell after he was crucified on the cross, which I don't believe. But let's assume that it's true. Did he stop being the Son of God at that time? What kind of nonsense is that? Well, anyway. And, of course, she's got about five trillion people listening to her on YouTube and worldwide ministry. Itching ears, folks. Do not judge doctrine by a majority count because most people will have followed somebody off into la-la land doctrinally. People love to do that. They have itching ears to suit their passions. How many teachers say, well, you know, homosexuality is not all that bad. Why? Because, hey, they want to be homosexuals. So now we've got whole denominations full of homosexual Christians. And the clear word of God is avoided, violated. These people are teaching Jewish myths, these false teachers with it itching ears. Now, what are some options as to what myths Paul's talking about? Here's option one, Gnostic eons. An eon was an angelic level between the high God, the demiurge, and the lesser spiritual beings. And you, of course, had to have passwords, secret passwords of the Gnosis, the knowledge to be able to tell the angel guarding each level so that you could climb up. It reminds me of video games. And so these eons were angels... Uh, were levels that were guarded by angels and these angels are lesser than God and they create material things. That again is the idea to get wicked, nasty. The wicked, nasty physical creation separated as far as you can from the supreme God. Or it could be, that's Gnostic stuff. Or it could be Jewish myths. Messianic genealogies. This so-and-so is the son of this so-and-so and son of this, this person is the son of so-and-so and then the Messiah is born. Or maybe it's some non-canonical Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas, I think, is one. Anyway, they've got all these stupidness, trash, trash, false doctrine out there. And Paul's saying the people are going to be tempted by that stuff. you got to stop them. The idea of not teaching myths is everywhere in the pastorals. I've already, in previous audios, mentioned some of them. I'm going to mention two here. First Timothy 4, 7 had nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. First Timothy 6, 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's the gnosis. That's how we know it's Gnostic heresies there when he says that. Second Timothy verse 5 of chapter 4. 
As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Endure suffering, he said that in the previous, I think it's chapter 3, I can't remember, in Second Timothy, suffer for the elect, he said. Suffering. Paul and Timothy were close to it all their lives. And as a result, he says, be sober-minded. And that doesn't refer to abstinence from wine. It refers to being even-tempered. Be even-tempered as you fight these scumbag heretics. Don't get angry at them. Be even-tempered. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Well, suffering is not easy, so you have to put up with it. You have to tolerate it. You have to bear it. You have to endure it. The old King James has, you have to be patient about it. Do the work of an evangelist. Evangelism is not easy. It's hard. That's what I did mainly when I was in China. I tried to witness the college students. And of course, being in China with the language barrier, the communist barrier, yes, there was a lot of obstacles. It was You had to work to get around those obstacles. It wasn't easy. I prayed about it all the time. Show me somebody. It didn't just happen naturally. And I'm not an evangelist by, by gifting, but I think every Christian ought to ought to witness every chance he gets, if it's, even if it's just a few people. I read somewhere or heard somewhere years ago that if every Christian won five people to the Lord, 100% of the planet would be saved in a very short period of time because of, of the math, the mathematics all, of it all. But unfortunately, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I can't witness very well, especially in America. It's hard to witness in America. But I said, if I can just get five people, because I knew I was never going to be Billy Graham. Well, I got my five. I got a little bit more than five, actually. But I remember I felt so good that I got five. Well, that's not much. It's not many, but if everybody would do that, the gospel would spread like crazy. But Timothy was a gifted evangelist. That was his gift, I'm sure, as well as being a pastor, as well as being an apostle, as well as being a teacher. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Bring it to completion. Bring it to perfection. Bring it to maturity. Let me give you a good quote from the commentator that I'm using on Timothy Ellison. Quote, gospel ministry without evangelism is not a full ministry. Evangelism is the heart of God, the purpose of Christ's sacrifice, and the primary task of the Spirit. In other words, when you find an evangelist, treat them with care. Nourish them, because they're hard to find, good ones. Second Timothy 4, 6-7 For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. A drink offering was an Old Testament wine sacrifice. The priest would pour the wine over the altar. And it's a good metaphor for death because wine being poured out, the wine is dark red, same color as blood. So when the wine is poured out, it's like blood being poured out, the blood of the sacrificial victim. In the case of the Old Testament priest, in the case of Paul, it's his own blood, his life. He's about to die. The time of my departure has come. That means his death, his departure from this veil of tears. He's about to shuffle off his mortal coil. Paul used that metaphor as a drink offering in his other Another of his prison epistles, Philippians 2.17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, again, that's more or less a hypothetical situation. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering. And here he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Sounds like he's more certain he's, he's going. And again, that makes it poignant as he's talking to Timothy about his death. I've been listening to some Ralph Stanley bluegrass music, some of the best music ever been created everywhere. The man was a dedicated Christian. It's amazing to me how many songs have to do with mama dying, about mama that's passed the faith on to him, and then she's getting ready to go see Jesus. I mean, there's tons of them. It's a sort of hymnology, if you will, that you're not going to find 
in, of course, not in contemporary Christian music, of course, and not in your traditional Protestant hymn book. You're not going to find that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, today's urban Christian is not aware of Ralph Stanley and bluegrass gospel music. It's a shame they don't. Because then they had a feeling of, the, I guess it was because of their living situations. They were poor, and the medicine was not good, and it was, and a lot of people died. And they went to be with Jesus. But they had such a concept of heaven as home. It was just like going from one room to another. And I remember going to a new evangelical seminary, Trinity Seminary in Chicago. And that was at the end of the 60s when evangelicals were trying to be cool and revelant and suck up to the secular culture. I thought that Christians were supposed to fight the secular culture. And I was naive when I went up there. And I found out very fast that there was a bunch of people up there that were what I would call liberals, theological conservatives, but political liberals. In other words, they were inconsistent with themselves. And I would always hear this slam on southern gospel music and by extension, bluegrass gospel. We need to be concerned about this world. We don't need to be so concerned about next world. That kind of music is escapist. And they acted like it was something terrible. That music is the best music in the world. I wish I could go back in time and tell every person there, you don't know what the Gehenna you're talking about. Now, Paul says he's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. Those are athletic metaphors dealing with boxing and running. Paul loved these kind of metaphors. Here's some athletic metaphors he used in different places. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's gone from running to boxing now. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So there's your running metaphor. There's your boxing metaphor. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, we have the boxing metaphor first. I have fought the good fight. And then we have the running metaphor. I have finished the race. Here's another athletic metaphor in Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He's referring to the resurrection of the dead. He has not made it his own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. That's athletic imagery. Running, pressing hard, straining, panting, gasping. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call is referring to resurrection. I'm sure he's pressing on to the time at the end of his race when he gets resurrected again. Now, that's athletic imagery that Paul uses. How about military imagery? Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor. There's military reference, armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the e- in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, being fastened on the be- having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Now, what does this tell us? Paul is telling Timothy that life is an athletic contest or it's a war. 
And it's going to be tough the whole time. And there's so many Christians, especially in America, that think that life is just a bowl of cherries. We're going to be lying on a beauty dress mattresses, watching color TVs, looking out over the pool, watching the waves roll in and our $500,000, or excuse me, our 4 $5 million beach house. We're not going to have any trouble. Our wives are going to come to us bringing us grapes and wine. Never going to have any problem with the kids. We're going to have a white picket fence, Irish setter, curled up in the sun out in the yard, and a Siamese cat curled up in the windowsill inside your little your mansion. Not your vacation home, but your mansion. And it's just going to be wonderful. Well, folks, let me tell you something. It ain't like that. And Paul tells Timothy it's not like that. He said his race was about finished, Paul says. He knew he was about to die, and he, and he says, I have kept the faith. Now, what? Does he mean by that? Well, it could mean he was faithful to the doctrine of Jesus. He was faithful to Jesus himself personally. He could be referring that he, uh, he kept the rules, an athletic metaphor for keeping the rules. I've kept the faith. I've kept the rules of the faith. He's been faithful to the profession of the faith, the Christian faith, all of the above. He was faithful to the faith, the body of doctrines that he's trying to t teach Timothy. He was faithful to Jesus. He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He didn't quit when the going got tough when he was shipwrecked, when he was beaten with stripes and flogged, when he was reviled, when he was dragged before magistrates. He just kept right on going. He's in prison right now. He's going, he's, he had slowed down a bit. First Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, believe me, Paul deserved, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, this crown of righteousness can be interpreted in a, several different ways. First of all, we need to look at options as to how we can read the of, the crown of righteousness. Does that mean the crown which comes about because of Paul's righteousness, the crown of that which eventuates from Paul's life, the crown of righteousness? Or could it mean the crown which consists of righteousness, the crown not made of gold, but of righteousness. Well, of course, we normally read it, the crown of righteousness means the crown which consists of righteousness. Well, if you read it as the crown which comes about because of righteousness, that then you got a couple other options to interpret that. Does that mean the crown of righteousness which Paul got because his righteousness was imputed to him, an alien righteousness that he did not deserve on his own, but when he was justified and declared righteous before God legally, he got a crown because of that, or it could be a crown of that results from his righteous living as he's lived a righteous life, as he's fought the good fight, as he's run the good race, run the race set before him. Well, I don't know linguistically which the way that Paul, it can be interpreted several different ways, but I think that the bottom line is, is that Paul's going to get a crown. He's going to get a reward. Now, what that reward is, it could be because in his glorified state, he's going to be perfectly righteous, or it could be a reward he got because of his righteousness while on earth. I don't know, but the point is, he's going to get a crown. He's going to get rewarded, and all Christians will get rewarded if we'll just stand firm and don't fall away. Now, I don't mean fall away from salvation. I mean, because if you're born again, you're not going to lose your salvation, which I'm telling you, I suspect you're going to lose a lot of rewards when you get up there. And Paul's going to have a lot more rewards because of what he did. And that's fine because when we get to heaven, we're going to say, yep, Paul's up there closer to Jesus than me. He's got more crowns than me. He's got more rewards. To put it in crass terms, his mansion up there is bigger than mine. But am I going to look at that and say, that's not fair? No, I'm going to say, oh, that's wonderful. Paul got what he deserved. He deserves more than me. 
and I'm going to be happy because there's going to be complete happiness and content in the final state in heaven with Jesus. Now, the Lord, and of course that's either God, because God's often called a judge, or it's Jesus. Context, I think, is better for Jesus because it says all who have loved his appearing, and Jesus appeared more than God did because Jesus was the the way that God revealed himself to the world. So let's just say this is Jesus, the Lord, the Jesus, the righteous judge. Jesus is righteous, and that's why he's going to reward Paul for his faithfulness. He's going to award Paul something. Just like you run a good race, you get a little laurel wreath at the end of the race. Well, by golly, Paul's going to get a crown. Now, Yahweh, God the Father, has appointed Jesus as a judge. We read in Matthew 25, 31 through 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That separation activity is a judging activity. Acts 17.31, because he, God the Father, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A man whom he has appointed, that would be Jesus. God the Father has fixed a day on which he, God, will judge the world. He will judge the world by a man whom he has appointed, that would be Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, Jesus is the judge. Now, Paul mentions in this verse that he will get his crown of righteousness on that day. ESV capitalizes day, probably because they are referring the day to the general resurrection, the last judgment, as Ellison Gill suggests. Gill suggests it could be the day of Paul's death. The idea is that just as Paul gets his reward on the day he dies, and everybody else, when they die, gets their reward on the day of their death. So it would read like this, The Lord, the righteous judge, this crown of righteousness, will award to me on that day that I die. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing on the day that they die, different days, different people. Well... I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting, but I don't think that's what it really means. I think we're going to have to wait a little bit till the last judgment before we get our reward. I don't think it's going to be a bad wait. And by the way, the crown here, we think of a metal crown, like the Burger King crown. It's golden. Well, it's not really. It's a wreath. It's referring to the garland that winners of the Greek games got when they won a contest. All right, we see Paul now at the end of his life. He's getting ready to close out his letter to... Timothy, we'll start with verse 9 in our next audio and finish the chapter. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through the end, verse 22, we will get to meet a lot of Paul's fellow workers. As Paul gives Timothy his final greetings and signs off, never to see him again. I hope you stay tuned for the next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.